Father in heaven, we thank you that you have provided us this opportunity to come and worship you, to give thanks to you for our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the spirit of the living God that has sealed us to that day of our redemption. We thank you and we praise you that we are kept by the power of God and that your word of truth is truth not only for us but for everyone who lives in the world. That we can not only rely upon it but we can live our lives by it as you give us grace and clarity of understanding through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We ask for your Spirit now to guide and direct us into the truth of your Holy Word. And may you, Lord God, be glorified and exalted in each of our hearts and lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, God is not binary, meaning God is not two, but one God. And there is but one God. And God is revealed in his word as a triune God. One God having three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, yet one God. However, in God's creation, we find a number of binary examples in God's created order. There are only two genders, male and female. There is the heavenly realm and there is the earthly realm. There is light and there is darkness. There are human beings created in the image of God. And then there are, in another category, all the other things, living things, that God has created. There is the spiritual and there is the material. But there's also an ethical binary distinctions in our world today both politically, socially, and morally. If we look at it politically, there are people who tend to be liberals and those that are conservatives. There are those that have the persuasion of being capitalists and those that are socialists or communists. In the social realm, there are enemies, as well as friends. There is the civilized as well as the uncivilized. And morally, there is truth, and there is that which is false. There is the rational as well as the irrational. There is both the positive or the negative. There is the yes, and there is the no. There is good, and there is evil. And in John's letter here, as he's teaching us about what it means to live in the truth, it is important that he is using this binary sort of nature to explain things in contrast. 
Remember, John's purpose in writing this letter was twofold. First, he was to confront and rebuke the false teachers who had crept into the church presenting Gnostic, pseudo-gospel, which advocated a dualism, a binary system of thought, which labeled the material or the matter of this world as evil and the spirit or the soul realm as good. However, this system of thought, this dualism, if you will, denied that Jesus Christ was truly human, that denied his incarnation. There was a group called the Docetics who actually believed this truth, that Jesus was not truly human. And in so doing, it denied that Jesus Christ's substitutionary atoning sacrifice was for sins did not happen. And that his bodily resurrection from the dead in victory as being fully God and fully man did not provide eternal salvation for those who believe in him. And in the context of this Gnostic heresy, they taught, in essence, that the physical body and the things that happen in the material world really didn't matter. You did not need to obey the moral laws that God has established in his word. All you had to do in your spirit was to, to look for and to acquire, if you will, this prescribed higher mystical knowledge of God. Well, he not only was writing this letter to rebuke and to correct and confront these false teachers, but he also wanted to instruct and urge the believers who are being deceived by these false teachers to go back to the Scriptures, to learn to, and to obey and to live by God's gospel presented in his inspired word. So as to follow not only the word of God, but also the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John's instruction comes even into a sharper image here in chapter 3, verses 4 through 24, where John explains the binary spiritual reality of two types of people in this world. The first are those that are born of God, and the second are those who are not born of God. These verses dramatically contrast a person living in lawlessness and a person who is living in righteousness. And he starts here in verse 4 where he says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And we all know what it means to practice in something, whether it be playing sports or playing a musical instrument or learning a particular trade skill or developing, if you will, a business, or even training in medicine. 
they all require practice. And I have heard it said that this is why professionals, particularly in the medical field, say that they are still practicing medicine. To be practicing involves a continuing amount of uh, sacrificing of time and effort and expense, and it involves a high level of dedication on the part of the person who is trying to learn. And those keeping on in sin and those who are continuing to live sinful habits, John defines them as people who practice sin and are practicing lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. And basically what it comes down to, folks, is this. These are people who are wanting to have it their own way rather than God's way. James Montgomery Boyce, as he spoke on this particular um, subject of this verse, said this, Sin is the spirit of lawlessness itself, which lies behind the rebellion. So my question to you this morning is this. How can a believer who is truly born of God, who is a new creature in Christ Jesus, and who has now a new godly nature, habitually sin, practice lawlessness? Well, John actually gives us in this letter four reasons why believers cannot practice sin. The first one there is given to us in verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. So as God's redeemed people who have had this new born-again experience by the Spirit of God and have new life in Christ, cannot keep on sinning because it is a violation of the law of God, which we now, as new creatures in Christ, we love the law of God. Just as the psalmist said there in Psalm 119, verse 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. It is important for us to realize that the law of God is our friend and not our enemy, that we are to embrace it, that we are to indeed seek to live by faith in the laws of God's moral design. As Jeremiah wrote there in Jeremiah chapter 30, one about the new covenant, he said this, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will all know me, he says, from the least to the greatest of them, and I will forgive their iniquity and their sin 
I will remember no more. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who has established this new covenant for us and in us through his blood sacrifice on the cross of Calvary and his glorious resurrection from the dead. In fact, John makes it very clear here in verse 5. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Which brings us to the second reason. It is because Jesus came in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin, that we cannot habitually sin as believers because of the redemptive work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You see, Jesus Christ has broken on that cross the sin's dominion, its death, its power over our lives. We have died to sin. We now live to righteousness, as Paul was teaching us there in Romans chapter 6 that we have died with Christ and we have been raised with Christ to new life. As Paul also talked about there in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. Or as Peter talked about in his first letter in verse uh, 18 of chapter 3, he was the just who died for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Therefore, John says to us here in verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, he's not talking about sinless perfection here after we come to faith in Christ, but what he is talking about is that we cannot continue to keep on sinning like it's not important to Christ. It is very important to our walk with Christ and us abiding in Christ. We are told to abide in him. To abide in him means that we will not sin if we are abiding in him and he in us. For the one who sins and keeps on sinning has neither seen him nor known him. If someone was to come up and claim that they are a Christian and yet are habitually sinning in their lives, that person has never known God's salvation in Jesus Christ. That's why he says here in verses 7 and 8, little children, make sure no one deceives you. 
The one who is practicing righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who is practicing sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. John is giving us a warning here as believers. Don't let anyone deceive you. Claiming to be a Christian and yet not practicing righteous as Jesus is righteous. The one who does not practice righteousness is practicing sinning. And that one is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning, John says. The false teaching and the claims that are false have their source in the devil, who is, as Jesus says, the father of lies. Even as he told the religious Jewish leaders during his earthly ministry there in John chapter 8, we read this. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And this brings us to the third reason of why we cannot keep on sinning habitually. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Christ came to destroy the devil's works. And since this is so, we who are in Christ have the victory over the devil and his works. Yes, the devil still operates in the world. But those who are in Christ, he is a defeated foe. We are no longer under the regime of his sin and rebellion and the temptation and the false accusation and the false guilt that is prevalent in our world. And this brings us to the fourth point, which he brings up in verse 9 and 10. No one, no one who is born of God practices sin. Why? He tells us, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. We are born of God. Born again by the Spirit of the living God. We have a new nature in Christ. His seed, he says here, abides in us. 
And as Paul told us there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to, to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. As John tells us here in verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Beloved, sin has no more dominion over us. Therefore, having a practice or a habitual action of sin has no place in the life of a believer who is abiding in Christ. As John says it, the seed of God's nature is rooted in all true believers, and it produces righteousness. But it also produces the practice of loving one another, just as God has loved us in Christ. And this is, if you will, the pathway to holiness, living righteously, practicing righteousness in God, and loving one another as God has loved us. Well, how are we supposed to know if we're loving our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, it gives us an example of what it is not there in verse 11. Meaning verse 12, excuse me. He says, verse 11, For this is the message we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see, one of the things that characterized the life of Cain was this. Jealousy for who his brother was living righteously and hatred that brought him to the place where he would kill his own brother. Jesus talked about this very issue, that it is something that begins in the heart, that the evil, as he talks about there in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, the evil is from within. It comes from the heart, and that's where it came from in the life of Cain, his hatred and his jealousy for his brother. So what does it mean to love our brethren? Well, I think the subsequent verses give us some good examples here. He says here in verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life 
when we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. One of the things that is true about loving the way God wants us to is that we will see love proven by the way in which we love the people of God. Do you love the people of God? Despite all of their warts and frailties and inconsistencies that you may see in their life, do you love them? I mean, my, my hat goes off to our secretaries in the office. They got to deal with me every day. And there is not a time when I'm not uh, amazed at the love that they show to one another as well as to everyone in the office. And if you ever come to the office, you'll experience through them. Now, I just embarrassed them, and they'll forgive me. But loving the brethren is not an option. It is one of the proofs that we are on that pathway to holiness that God has called us to. The second is this. We know love by the Lord's example. As he laid down his life for us there in verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Love of God in our hearts is going to be a self-sacrificing love, even if it means the cost of our lives itself so that others might live. The third is found in verses 17 and 18. He says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We're called to not just love with nice words. Love is supposed to be an action, a commitment. It is to help those and meet the needs of others, those that are hurting to help them to heal, to console the lost, to relieve the weary, to help those that are uh, worrying, and to give God's hope. An example of this is found uh, back in James chapter 2 and verses 14 through 17, where he says this, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. God is calling us to not just love in word, but in deed and in truth. In verse 22, he gives us another quality of this love. He tells us very clearly that when we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight, we are loving one another. You see, love obeys all that God commands us to do because we want to be pleasing to him. 
He says, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of God, his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And then finally, this is the other quality of love that he brings out in verses 23 and 24. He says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. In other words, love abides securely in relationship with God as we keep his word, as we're steadfast in following after him. It confirms in our hearts and in our minds and in our faith by the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that is working in us. Beloved, it's important for us to realize in this world there are two brands of people. The children of God and the children of the devil. The children of God are those who are practicing righteousness and they are loving one another. The children of the devil are practicing sin and lawlessness and they hate God and they hate the believers who are following Christ. The question is this, whose child am I? Whose child are you? If we claim to be the children of God or to be God's child, we need to practice what we preach. Amen.